Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's nice to see so many of you here this afternoon. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro-directors here at LSE, recognizing a few people in the audience. And it's a real pleasure, I would say a great privilege and a great <coughs> honor uh, to welcome you to this afternoon's event on excellence in public policy, which is, of course, a celebration of Julian Legrand's 40 years as a leading academic and policy analyst. It's an unusual thing that we're doing, and I think a, an extremely nice and well-deserved thing, too. Uh, my main task is just to set the scene for the meeting and to introduce our speakers. Uh, very shortly, we'll be hearing in turn from Peter Taylor Gooby, from Carol Proper, from Nick Timmins, and we'll be joined also later on by Albert Wheel. And after they've spoken, Julian will quickly respond, and then we'll open it up uh, to question and answers. Uh, it's a tremendous lineup of people, as I think you'll all agree. Uh, what I'd like to do, though, uh, first, although it's a very informal event and it's a celebratory event, uh, I would like to give uh, proper introductions to all of our principals, and that will require me to look a little bit at my notes. And I'd like to say something first also about the setting for this, the sponsor of this lecture, which is LSE Health and Social Care. So I'm going to say something about that research centre first, and then I'll introduce uh, Julian, not that he needs much of an introduction, of course, to anybody that's here this afternoon. And then I'll introduce each of our main speakers in turn before they, before they speak. So let me just start, uh, particularly if you're joining us from outside the school, by, by saying something about LSE Health and Social Care. I, I think we have 24 academic departments in the school. I think we have 19 registered research centres. And LSE Health and Social Care one of our largest and most prestigious research centres. It was established in 2000, and it now includes three research groups, LSE Health, which is really rooted in health economics and health policy, the Personal Social Services Research Unit, which is focused on social care policy and mental health economics, and the NIHR School for Social Care Research, which focuses on social care practice. LSE Health and Social Care also hosts the European Observatory on Health Systems and Policies. And collectively, it promotes and draws upon the multidisciplinary expertise of 72 staff members, 58 associated academics, and a very large number of postgraduate students. And it has a wide array of links to other universities and to policy-making institutions. Uh, I was amazed, although I am the pro-director for research at the school, to be told that the uh, LSE Health and Social Care has received over 100 research grants since 2008, uh, totaling more than £31 million. And funding comes from a variety of sources, including international and UK public bodies, research councils, research charities, and private corporations. Current funding alone comes from the Commonwealth Fund, the Department of Health for England, the ESRC, the Economic and Social Research Council, the European Commission, the European Parliament, the Medical Research Council, the Merck Foundation, the Nuffield Foundation, the Nuffield Trust, the OECD, the Office of Far Tra Fair Trading, the Wellcome Trust, USAIDS, the World Bank, and the World Health Organization. Um, LSE Health, then, is uh, one of the major intellectual units of this university. And the work of the centre continues to be widely acknowledged uh, in the broader society. A key achievement came in 2009 
when the Centre was awarded a Queen's Anniversary Prize for higher and further education, quote, for applying research to the advancement of global health and social care policy. And this award recognised the substantial impact of the Centre's research on policy and practice. In the words of the Royal Anniversary Trust, and I quote again, the work is widely seen as unique in its continuing ability to bridge the gap between research and policy. It is widely and frequently referenced by policymakers and has contributed to raising the quality of evidence-based policymaking within government. I think one of the reasons why LSE Health and Social Care is such a beacon within the school is the quality of leadership that it has now and has had since its founding 11 years ago. And of course this brings me uh, to our guest of honour today, uh, Julian Legrand. Uh, Julian Legrand has been the Richard Titmus Professor of Social Policy at LSE since 1993 and he continues to be the chair of the Management Committee of LSE Health and Social Care. Uh, Julian is also currently chair of the Cabinet Office's Mutuals Task Force set up by the Cabin Cabinet Office Minister Francis Maud with the support of both the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister, which I suppose is just as well. <laughs> uh, Julian is the author, the co-author, the editor of over 20 books, and he's written more than 100 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters, as we all know, in the areas of economics, philosophy, and public policy. He is a founding academician of the Academy of Social Sciences, an honorary fellow of the Faculty of Public Health Medicine, a trustee of the King's Fund, and the current chair of the Harkness Fellowship Selection Committee for the New York Commonwealth Fund. In 2006, Julian was awarded an honorary doctorate at DLIT by the University of Sussex, and in 2007, he was made a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. Now, Julian, as we all know, is not simply an academic of very great distinction, although he is surely that. From 2003 to 2005, Julian was seconded to number 10 Downing Street as senior policy advisor to the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair. In 2007, Julian was chair of the Social Work Practices Working Group for the Department for Children, Families and Schools, and from 2007 to 2009, he was chair of Health England for the Department of Health. Uh, Julian's also, of course, been an advisor to many, many important global institutions, to the President of the European Commission, to the World Bank, the WHO, the OECD, Her Majesty's Treasury, and the BBC. He's been a vice chair of a teaching hospital, a commissioner on the Commission for Health Improvement, a governor of this August institution, the LSE, and a non-executive director of several health authorities. Uh, Julian has also served on many National Health Service working parties, on several think tank commissions, and on two grant boards for the Economic and Social Research Council. Now, if that wasn't enough, uh, perhaps most importantly of all, uh, Julian has been, as we know, one of the main architects of a series of public service reforms uh, that have sought to introduce more choice and competition into healthcare and education provision. Among the public policies that he's helped to originate are the Child Trust Fund, his partial success of the junior ISA, the Partnerships Fund scheme for funding long-term care, 
which is currently under consideration by the Dilnock Commission, the pupil premium for school education, which currently has been implemented by the Department for Education, the social work practice, now being piloted by the Department for Education and the Department of Health, and patient budgets, also now being piloted by the Department of Health. And throughout all this, I think that Julian's public policy interventions have always been consistently underwritten uh, by a very established and well-regarded body of academic work. If I just mention some of his leading books, we can think of Market Socialism, 1989, Motivation Agency and Public Policy, Consistent Care Matters, and more recently from 2007, The Other Invisible Hand. I, I think Julian was described uh, by the ESRC as one of its top ten heroes of dissemination. And one of my duties at LSE is to prepare for REF 2014, the Research Excellence Framework, which tries to connect academic work to public impact. And Julian is a lesson to all of my colleagues, particularly if they're in the room today, of how, <laughs> of how that might be done. He is a walking series of impact case studies. <laughs> Let me now conclude by being slightly more polite. Julian was recently described by The Guardian as one of the leading British public intellectuals. And, and that's clearly right. That's clearly why we're here today. He writes regularly for the national and the international press and he appears frequently on television and radio. He's been several times a member of Radio 4's Any Questions panel, and he's presented several editions of Radio 4's Analysis and BBC 2's The Big Idea. I think, speaking more personally, uh, we're delighted, though, that Julian's primary affiliation still is with the London School of Economics, and it's very great pleasure, then, to uh, get underway this afternoon this celebration of Julian's contribution, this contribution to excellence in public policy. Now, we have a fairly uh, tight program to run through this afternoon, and as I say, the basic plan is that each of our four speakers will speak for about 20 minutes, and then there will be a response from Julian and a quick question and answer session. Our first speaker, and I will introduce uh, Peter now, is Professor Peter Taylor Gooby, who's a professor of social policy at the University of Kent and the chair of the British Academy's New Paradigms in Public Policy program. Peter also chairs the Hefke Research Excellence Framework subpanel for social work and social policy and administration. He's a fellow of the British Academy and a fellow of the RSA. He's participated in the Prime Minister's number 10 Progressive Consensus Roundtable, and he's advised the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit from 2000, during 2009 and 2010. Uh, Peter was the President of the Sociology and Social Policy Section of the British Association for the Advancement of Science from 2005 to 2006, and he chaired the Social Policy and Social Work Research Assessment Exercise Panel for RAE 2008. Professor Taylor Gooby is also a co-director of the Risk Research Center at Beijing Normal University. Since 2008, he has been a state-appointed visiting foreign expert to China, as well as a distinguished visitor attached to the government of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. Uh, happily for him, Peter currently holds a Lever Hume Trust Major Research Fellowship looking at social cohesion at the crosswords, crossroads. So I'm going to hand over now to our first speaker, Peter Taylor Gooby, to talk to us 
and it's just moved in front of me on the topic, I think, of understanding trust. Right, well, thank you very much, uh, and uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to come here and contribute to this celebration of Julian's contribution. Uh, I'm not quite sure what I should say next. Contribution to social policy as an academic subject, contribution to theory across a range of areas of social science, contribution to public policy practice, and contribution to the academic community of social policy in the UK and elsewhere. And this is one of those uh, rare occasions, I think, when one feels uh, slightly sorry for Julian, uh, because not only does he have four of us coming at him, uh, to whom he has to respond, uh, but also we're going to present four different aspects of his contribution. So you'll probably end up thinking uh, that we're actually dealing with four different people. Well, actually, we're not. It's all the same person. I'd like to talk about two aspects of uh, Julian's work. Uh, his work in attacking some of the big issues in social and public policy, and also his work in bridging between different disciplines in social science that are relevant to how we make social policy work. Big issues. One of the traditional issues in social policy is what you might call the trilemma, the trilemma between responsiveness, equity, and cost-effectiveness. Traditionally, many people have argued that uh, it's great to make social policies responsive to people, but the more you do that, the more it's the uh, rather well-heeled men from southern England, like myself, who find ways of pushing themselves to the front of any queue that's around, uh, so that there are difficulties in reconciling responsiveness to equity. It's often argued as well that the more one pursues policies to promote equity and to favour the more vulnerable groups in society, the more difficult it is to achieve cost efficiency in the distribution of resources. And of course the current uh, political and economic dilemma sharpens these, these kinds of problems. And one can locate all those separate good things, responsiveness, equity, cost effectiveness, in different political traditions, one can suggest there are different assumptions about what the role of government should be and how it relates to individuals and other groups in society. And one can locate them in different disciplinary traditions. Responsiveness perhaps finds a natural home in political science. Equity perhaps is much more concerned with social political philosophy. Cost effectiveness finds its home in economics. And I'd like to suggest that one important strand in Julian's work, and I've mentioned uh, motivation agency and public policy, uh, the other invisible hand, and of course a range of other books and articles, essentially reconciles these different goods. And does, them effect, does this effectively through 
drawing together the notion of choice located with individual service users with the no notion of competition in service agencies and also by stressing the role of institutional design of emphasizing the importance of ensuring that the agencies that deliver public policy must be organized so that individuals have good information to make choice that access is freely available uh, that adverse selection is restrained stopping providers colluding with each other and though it's not on the list in the slide and certainly should be accommodating the way institutions are designed to the different motivations of those whom Julian's termed knights and knaves, providers who are concerned essentially with promoting what they see as the public interest and those who are concerned simply with their own interests. Well, that's really the issue of the trilemma of public policy. Let me come back to that in a moment, but merely mention the issue of drawing together different disciplines. Now, I think it's fair to say that people in social policy, and looking around the room, I see some of you whom I'd locate in social policy, uh, and some, I think, who come from other disciplinary areas, but people in social policy often see their subject as at root interdisciplinary, as drawing different disciplines together. Not sure whether people outside social policy think this is the case about social policy people, or whether they ever bother to think about it at all. Much more important things to think about, I'm sure. But one of the uh, facets of Julian's work that I think we should also celebrate is the way in which he's brought different disciplinary backgrounds together. Issues uh, in, in the work on the strategy of equality, uh, not only the poor uh, and that strand of work, bringing together economic concerns with equality. Also, I should add institutional concerns with how you design institutions to promote equality, but also a sociology that looks at the different power of different groups in society, and particularly of social classes, and their capacity to subvert uh, government policies that promote equality. And then one could suggest that, uh, uh, that uh, interests at the boundaries of economic theory and social philosophy uh, figure in works like equity uh, and choice. And then the work that focuses on knights and knaves uh, and on uh, how markets can be applied within the public sector effectively draws together a whole range of areas. Social psychology, I suggest, the disciplines that feed into decision theory, public administration and public policy also some of sociology. Well, I want to focus this on the area of trust, trust in public policy. Uh, one of the key issues, I think, now in public policy. One can suggest that there's a traditional model uh, of social policy, a model you might see as a Fabian tradition. Governments take resources through taxation, they provide the services that in their wisdom they decide it's best to provide. Uh, they trust the providers to deliver those services cost effectively in order to meet people's needs. Users and taxpayers understand this is a wise and essentially benign process, uh, so they trust the produce providers to serve their interests. 
This is a model which has run into many problems, uh, as many people have argued in recent years, uh, growing public mistrust of the public sector, perhaps Anthony Giddens, and I'm sure that's a name uh, that echoes around these chambers, is one of the people who's been at the forefront of drawing attention to the problem of trust. Well, Julian's critique of that approach, I think, emphasises very much the problem of how you manage the providers of services. Well, they may be inefficient. They may have their own professional agendas, which are good in themselves, but perhaps not the most cost-effective agendas. And what they do may damage the capacity of the system to meet the goals of policy. Various possible <coughs> responses to this. Uh, what you might call the third way model. Well, the state, in its wisdom, becomes aware that producers don't necessarily provide the services uh, that uh, it's best for the model to provide. So it sets targets to manipulate the incentives that the producers face to control them. Users believe this works, so they trust the system. But there are problems with that. Producers may work to subvert the targets, or they may simply work to attain targets and not provide other good things. The pressure to uh, bring down waiting lists in the health service, for example, uh, in recent years, may direct resources away from other important priorities in healthcare. But also, you've got to bear in mind that some producers are honestly trying to do what they see as in the public interest. The more you restrict them with targets, the more you may damage their capacity to do that. So that knights and knaves have to be accommodated in any restructuring of the system. Now the solution suggested is choice and competition. You restructure the incentives because you bring the incentives down to the level of what users want. So you get responsive services, you get cost-effective services, and you redesign the institutions to deal with the problem of the multiplicity of motivations possible among the people who are providing them. Well, the issue I want to raise is the issue of trust. Trust is a complex idea, but one important aspect of it, the reason why trust is worthwhile, is to do surely with uncertainty, with risk, as uh, sociologists tend to use the term. Many sources of uncertainty, uh, one is to do with it's difficult to say what's going to happen in the future because there's no way of knowing, uh, but also in many areas of public policy, in healthcare is the obvious example, we simply, most of us, don't have the expertise to understand what it is we're likely to need. So we need, at some stage, to be able to trust the providers. Now, one can think of trust in a rational sense. You provide the correct incentives, and you think carefully about the structure of incentives that are facing the providers. And one way of doing this, of course, is the choice and competition route. And that should direct the providers' incentives so that they produce the output that serves the interests of the users and that is a basis for trust, the alignment of incentives. Another basis of trust is more normative. It's to do with the confidence, the belief 
that providers share values, that they have the interests of users at heart, so they will always commit themselves. And there are traditions in psychology, uh, economic theory, uh, political science, and so on, that one can draw together behind these two traditions. The problem, of course, is what is it that provides a good guarantee that someone or some institution will go continue to serve your interests in the future. I want to suggest that it's difficult to provide that on a simply on the basis of incentives and rational actions. Your choices and your confidence that those choices are directing providers now within a given institution structure is fine for the present, but how can you be confident that's going to go on operating in the future, particularly if the context changes? And your confidence in the values of producers, their commitment to you, is an important issue in trust as well. So does this take us to another kind of trilemma? One can have choice and competition. That might lead to cost effectiveness in the provision of services. But is it something that might damage the basis of shared commitment, of shared values, so that you get an erosion of trust? Uh, I want to suggest in passing that one of the ways this is often addressed is through looking at satisfaction with surveys. There's a great deal of attitude survey evidence on satisfaction, much less evidence on trust, because it's much more difficult to ask sensible questions about trust in uh, attitude surveys. But I do want to point out that satisfaction is a backward-looking concept. You're satisfied with what you've enjoyed in the past. Uh, with your trust is essentially future looking and evidence on satisfaction is therefore not necessarily a good guide to trust in the future. Let me take this into an interdisciplinary context. The idea that rests everything on trust, uh, about trust and about service production on choice and competition starts out from a rational action perspective, but it doesn't just say, stay there. You might say, if you have an incentive-driven system uh, and the incentives are provided by the choices of users, then we're thinking in terms of the rational calculating deliberative responses of providers. What Julian does is add to that idea, the idea that choices are also influenced by meanings, and that's essentially a sociological insight, I would argue. And they're introduced as unexplained factors. They enter externally to the system. So you can imagine producers who are selfish, self-interested, concerned with their professional advancement or their salary check or their reputation. But you can imagine producers who are other-centered knights, who work on behalf of other people and on behalf of the public good. You can imagine users who are interested simply in what they can get out of the service for themselves. You can also imagine users who are other-centred, who want to see the best system for everybody, like the grand tradition of Fabian socialism. Now, in Julian's model, the institutions, the way you carefully design the system, shapes actions. 
but it doesn't shape values. Values enter externally. What if institutions also contribute to shaping values? And that's really the question I'd like to ask. Because then, redesigning institutions on the basis of individual choice might promote individual interest as a motive, might foreground the idea that people are behaving in response to the incentives that face them, regardless of the particular values they, that are applied in that response. So that the question of whether you can be confident in how values will shape people's behaviour in the future becomes an open question. And that really is the basis for the suggestion that you can imagine a solution to the trilemma we started out with, the trilemma of responsiveness, equity and cost effectiveness, that in fact meets all those goals, but also produces problems in sustaining that because it damages trust in the future of the service. One can make comparable points about nudge and paternalism arguments and whether reshaping choice architecture also carries meanings that will influence how people respond to and understand public policy. I won't spend time on that now. Uh, time presses. Let me just say a little bit more about interdisciplinarity. I've mentioned that Julian's work rests on a wide range of scholarships across a number of disciplines, but I think it's not generally understood how wide that range is and how it rests on disciplines outside social science. I'm sure you're all familiar uh, with the story of James Joyce's Ulysses, how Leopold Bloom, essentially a humane man, perhaps in middle age, and the story traces his adventures on a particular day in 1904, travelling around Dublin, trying to advance his own interests rationally, uh, trying to meet his value goals, and also just acting in a humane way to other people. The story behind Ulysses, of course, many of you will know, is that James Joyce originally wrote the study Dubliners, the linked short stories, and one of the short stories he planned for that collection was based on an incident in his life. The incident was that James Joyce, as a young man, was uh, himself wandering around Dublin. He found a very attractive young woman in a park, so he started chatting her up, as your average Irish novelist does. But unfortunately, uh, the boyfriend of uh, this young woman came along and punched James Joyce on the nose, and he didn't enter into rational discourse and uh, <laughs> conversation. So James was lying there, with blood streaming down his face. Off they went. But a very kind middle-aged gentleman came along, picked him up, dusted him down, took him back home in state of some confusion, gave him a cup of tea or cocoa or whatever it says in the book, and uh, had a rather interesting intellectual conversation, described at length of about 400 pages in <laughs> Ulysses itself, and sent him on his way. And that's the story of the origin of Ulysses, because that short story expanded into the novel with various other themes. But uh, it's not generally understood that that's really the origin of the idea of baby bonds, of the Child Endowment Trust. And here is a quotation, and you have to remember that uh, James Joyce didn't go in for commas in this, uh, of uh, 
Leopold Bloom reflecting on Mrs. Purefoy, whom he sees in the street surrounded by her uh, brood of rather ragged, dishevelled children, obviously in great need of social work intervention. Uh, and he thinks, what can we do about this in his humane kind of way? Out of all the taxes, give every child born five quid at compound interest up to 21. 5% is 100 shillings and five tiresome pounds multiplied by 20. Well, actually, you should divide, shouldn't you? Uh, decimal system. Uh, encourage people to put by money. Save 110 and a bit. 21 years. I want to work it out on paper now. Uh, come to a tidy sum. More than you think. There you are. The origin of child endowment. <laughs> well, there's much more can be said about the literary roots of Julian's work. I don't think I've got time to say it now, but I'll just leave you with the quotation from Hard Times, uh, where you remember Gradgrind, the rational philanthropist, is confronted uh, towards the end of the book with his creation, Bitzer, the totally rationally educated child. And here we have the collision between knightly and knavish motivations. Bitzer, says Mr. Gradgrind, have you a heart? The circulation, sir, returned Bitzer, smiling at the oddity of the question, couldn't be carried on without one. Is it accessible to any compassionate influence? It is accessible to reason, sir. And goes on, of course, the whole social system depends on reason and it's a political economic kind of place. And if you don't believe in that, you have no business uh, to be anywhere else. And I put it to you that one of the things we should celebrate in Julian's work is his recognition of the importance of different values and different motivations because he accommodates a model which takes the crudities of the individual rational action approach beyond the limitations that you see in hard times to a novel where you do have capacity and room for compassion and humanity. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. We were obviously having a few problems with the acoustics, so thanks to Martin Knapp, I think, for sorting that out. Julian, are you going to speak from here? No, it's, uh, just uh, actually thinking about the hum, I'm reminded of uh, watching the, uh, watching the uh, debates, uh, the election debates uh, for the various candidates for being Prime Minister, and there was a kind of, uh, I think ITV had, a, had, I think, a called The Worm, which was, uh, a sort of, a, a, there were a group of people who were actually trying to uh, respond instantly to the kind of things that the, uh, that the candidates were saying. And if they approved what the candidate was saying, the worm would turn up and if they, uh, uh, on the screen. And if they disapproved, it would, it would turn down. I do remember the one time it turned, up, um, it turned down when Nick Clegg was speaking um, uh, was uh, over the, when he proposed to abolish the Child Trust Fund. Uh, <coughs> which I know particularly. But I was thinking the hum might be a bit like that, and maybe the hum is coming up, you know, when we say something that, they, that the ether disapproves of. It's going to, it's going to raise it. Anyway, um, I thank uh, Peter very much um, for his usual sophisticated um, uh, understanding and approach to these issues. And it is a fundamental question, and it does worry me at times about whether if you as you move towards more market-oriented ways of doing things, 
are you losing a kind of valued element in society? Um, Richard Titmus, my predecessor, I mean, he would say you lose, that as you move towards this, towards uh, market orientation, you lose the value of altruism. Or the pool of altruism in some sense diminishes. Um, I think what Peter's getting at is, is, is almost a broader concept that we lose the reservoir of trust in the society as we move uh, towards more market orientation. Um, and um, I, think, I think there's something to that. I, I think there is a, or rather the nature of trust changes. In fact, markets, of course, do depend upon trust. You have to trust that the, the process of exchange, you trust people to obey the rules of exchange. So if you give them the money, they will then give you the, give you the good. And hopefully there will be some, uh, there will, you will trust uh, in their sort of levels of quality, but it's perhaps a different kind of trust from the kind of trust that a patient places in their doctor, or indeed that the government might place in the doctors for achieving, uh, as you say, a sort of responsive and equitable service. Um, so I think, I, I think I'll, I'll leave that open at the moment to just see whether anyone's got any uh, points they'd like to make about the role of trust, um, because I do think it is a key issue, particularly for those of us who... Uh, 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 on general advocates of market orientation. I think we're trying to get two or three comments, questions. I think there's a microphone at the back. Gentleman at the back. I mean, if you could just say who you are, that would be very nice. Okay, thanks. Hello, Julian. Callum Payton uh, from Keele University. Um, just want to pay tribute to, in briefly to say that you know anyone who's engaging with these issues has to engage with your work. You're one of the you know, the leading intellectuals in the field. And when it comes to trust and the alternative ways of governing, shall we say, public services, I mean, the, the, the question I have, or rather the comment I have, is, is, not, is not one on either side of the fence, really. It's a question of what political institutions, or rather political cultures and political practices, do to political institutions alongside, shall we say, the intricate design that's necessary to, to enable... Your, your model, and I think that's the empirical question for, let's say, 20, 20 plus years of market reform and health services, or, or indeed in other areas. Perhaps health services, we've had so many redisorganizations, you know, compared to others, that that's a, that's a key one we're going to talk about later. But it, it's an empirical question at the end of the day. You know, it's a traditional point that you can compare good markets with, with bad planning and good planning with bad markets. And I think the, you know, the question that's coming out of the, the, the health service organizations, which I guess we're going to talk about later, is really, um, you know, when can we get the best of both worlds of, shall we say, you know, intelligent designs, if you'll pardon the phrase, whether market or otherwise, plus politics, and when can we get the, the worst of both worlds? Now, there's some literature reviews by people of all sorts of different political persuasions, you know, the, the, the Kivitas thing on, you know, have we had the worst of both worlds in market reform and, and so forth. So, I mean, to me, that's the empirical question, and how to research it is probably much more difficult than even researching any individual health service reform. So, I'm afraid I don't have the answer. It's just a, it's just a reflection. <laughs> Thank you very much. Does anybody else want to come in before Julian replies? There's a gentleman up there. Hi, good afternoon. Um, my name is William Wong. Um, on the way here, I picked up a tweet. Um, somebody made a comment, I think referring to an FT article today. I haven't read that yet. But basically, uh, alleging that the NHS is undermanaged and poorly managed 
And I was wondering, uh, perhaps just redesigning the institutions is not enough. Uh, my understanding is the, the NHS is highly fragmented, and maybe we need to actually think about an entirely new ecosystem. I wonder how you'd like to uh, respond to that. Thank you. Hey, I'm Kate Disney, Julian's most annoying student. Um, it just it upset Mark me a little. Kate, you're not bit. to give anything away. <laughs> it upset me a little bit that you suggested, you know, that trust might go down when you introduce markets. When I I do believe that you've been involved in some research with Marks and Spencer plastic bags that showed that when you introduce a charge, trust actually increase among people? I mean, I know nobody else has read it because we're waiting for somebody to finish it to publish it, but it should be available soon. I have no idea who you're talking about. Uh, it is true. I, I, I thank you, Kate, for pointing this out. It is true. So she, uh, Kate, has done some, Kate has done some very interesting research that does seem to indicate that by uh, by Marks and Spencer's introducing a 5p charge on plastic bags, um, not only did it reduce plastic bag use in Marks and Spencer's, unsurprisingly, but interestingly, it, it reduced plastic bag use in other stores that uh, were not charging. So it looked as though the provision of the charge actually, in some sense, increased people's environmental commitment and awareness, which is really quite a striking finding because there's quite a lot of other, uh, it's often asserted that by, if you actually start charging, e.g. for environmental uh, bads, um, uh, you actually irritate people, you piss them off and actually makes them more likely to engage in environmental uh, degradation than, than otherwise. But this is an interesting case where, and, and it, it does relate to, and again, Kate has done some work on this, the extent to which people trust uh, others to behave in, in, environment, in an environmentally suitable fashion. Um, and uh, as I say, for the moment, the interesting thing about this research is it does appear to indicate that the, this introduction of this market element actually increases the element of trust rather than decreases it. Um, on the uh, under management of the NHS, well, we're going to talk about the NHS in a moment. Perhaps I can postpone that one. Um, and uh, Callum's point is quite right. I mean, the, uh, many of these questions are ultimately empirical. Um, but of course, empirical questions about whether trust is rising or falling is such a difficult thing to measure, as indeed you say. Um, so um, it is, but at the end of the day, that, it's a very interesting area of research to develop. I think we're probably going to have to move on there. But if anybody else later on who's a co-worker of Julian or a research student wants to share They can shut up. <laughs> put your arm up and I'll, I'll be sure to call you. We live in the Ryan Giggs era, remember. Um, but we're, we're going to move on now. It's going to be like musical chairs. This is not really... Um, let me just give Carol an introduction. <laughs> Nineteen ninety eight to two thousand and nine. 
1993 and 1994, Carroll was a senior economic advisor to the NHS executive on the regulation of the NHS internal market. From 1997 to 2007, she was a co-director of the Center for the Analysis of Social Exclusion here at the school at the LSE. And until recently, uh, she chaired the ESRC Research Grants Board. Uh, Professor Proper is particularly interested in the impact of incentives on the quality of healthcare delivery and more widely on the design and consequences of incentives within the public sector and the boundary between the state and private markets. Now, obviously, uh, a lot of links there to Julian's own work. Carol has been awarded a CBE for her services to social science, and that accolade recognizes, recognizes Carol's research in the fields of public economics and the economics of healthcare, as well as her work with colleagues from other social science and medical disciplines. So we're very pleased that you're here today to also engage with, with Julian's work. Thank you, Carol. Um, I should start by saying what pleasure it is for me to be here and how honoured I was that Julian thought I could do any kind of justice to any work. And to sort of, I think I should start with a personal anecdote, really, that some people in this room I know know, and some people do not know, which is that, in fact, I was kind of happily having a job in London when I finished my PhD. And then I met uh, one Julian Legrand who said, I'm off to Bristol. Um, I'd really like you to come with me. So at which point I said, hmm, and, and then I'd been a student at Bristol, so I thought it was quite a nice place. So Julian said, we could work together on kind of issues in social policy. So I said, fine, I'll come. And we went to Bristol and we went to the School for Policy Studies, at which point Julian said, well, actually, Carol, you've arrived here, but I'm off back off to the LSE, <laughs> leaving me in Bristol. And in fact, Julian's lived in Bristol and worked in London, and I, as a consequence of Julian's actions, have lived in London and worked in Bristol. <laughs> Consequently, we've never met and discussed anything. You either get one, so you guys are really lucky, because you either get one of us in the room or the other. Of course, most people would rather have Julian, but then we're... Okay. So I'm, in contrast to Peter, I'm going to talk about one single subject. One single subject, though, that Julian's been extremely influential on which is the issue of competition and choice in healthcare. Um, so, I'll make, I'll make this go down, sorry. Nope, oh God, sorry. So this, I'm going to take as my starting place, which I went back and read about two weeks ago, Julian's article on quasi-markets and social policy, which was written in 1991. And I have to say that as I read this article, I was actually quite stunned by the article because I was quite stunned by how radical it was and in a sense how radical was the changes that Julian were reflecting on. So if I can now get this to work. So he was describing in this article the changes that had happened to social policy essentially at the end of the 80s. Um, and he was describing the changes put in place across a number of fields, fields like housing, that a number of people like John Hills have contributed in this room a lot to. And he basically said that what he described the Thatcher administration changes as, as a major offensive against the bureaucratic structure of welfare provision, years that in retrospect will be seen as a critical in the history of British social policy. 
And then he went on to say that all these reforms that he's talking about in a whole range of areas had a fundamental similarity, the introduction of quasi-markets into the delivery of welfare services. And I think I should at that point say that actually the term quasi-markets was invented by Julian on Birmingham Station during a long wait to get to crew. Um, it took actually most of the journey there and most of the journey back, but by the end of it, he had it. <laughs> So, more seriously, the intention of quasi-markets was, and I think this is very familiar to those of us in the room, but this was a very radical concept in, at the end of the 80s, and for the state to stop being both the funder and the provider of services, instead it was to become a funder purchasing services from a variety of public voluntary and public, sorry, private voluntary and public bodies all operating in competition with each other. And on the other, on the second hand, the method of funding was also to change, but it was given directly to potential users or agents acting on their behalf. I think if we stop and think about the whole furore about the health bill at the moment, we're clearly nowhere near this idea. I mean, if we said to the unions that you're meant to purchase services from a variety of public, private, and private public providers, they'd all go, you're destroying our NHS. But at the time, Julian was writing about something that I think in conception was much more radical or very radical and was, was kind of reflecting on that. This is clearly the direction of travel that's intended by these policies. Julian then went on to kind of codify exactly what a quasi or sometimes referred to as a queasy market is. <laughs> Quasi-markets differ from conventional markets in one or more of three ways. Julian identified, and those three ways that Julian identified were, first of all, and he stressed this quite a lot, and you can see how it links with the work that Peter was talking about, not-for-profit organizations competing for contracts, sometimes with profits. So quasi-markets had at the heart of them that there would be in there providers who were not-for-profit, mainly because not-for-profit organizations operate in precisely the kind of sectors, health, education, housing, that um, quasi-markets are put in for. Secondly, consumers would be purchasing in terms of vouchers rather than in terms of cash. And thirdly, was that consumers would be represented by agents instead of operating by themselves. And I think those three components of quasi-markets are very important components to kind of take away. Julian then went on in a later book with a colleague of mine, Will Bartlett, now at the LSC and then at Bristol, to kind of codify the conditions for quasi-market success. So having laid out what a quasi-market was, and in a sense exposed what kind of a radical vision quasi-markets were, he then argued that there are conditions, five conditions for quasi-market success. The first is that the market must be competitive. In a sense, if you're going to have choice, either by agents or by individual users, you've got to have something for them to choose between. Secondly, you've got to have information. You've got to have information about what you're choosing about. If you don't have any information, it's pretty difficult to make any kind of rational choice. You might as well just stick a pin on the donkey. Thirdly, you have to have low transactions costs. Essentially, if it costs you so much to find out about an alternative provider that uh, you haven't got any time to do anything else, you're not going to be engaging in this kind of market. 
Fourthly, and I think this was later developed by um, his book, Knights, Knaves, and Pawns. <laughs> I'm sorry, I always get it wrong. Um, was that you, you have couldn't to resist it, Carl, could you? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think it's fundamentally muddled in my head now. <laughs> Is you have to have motivation. You have to be concerned about providers being motivated to provide a good service, either by some kind of public sector motivation or by a, a, a for-profit motivation which um, takes into account what the users want. And finally, you have to have absence of selection. We know that the minute you introduce market mechanisms and the minute you introduce some kind of price for somebody, there's some incentive for providers to select the easier to treat, the cheaper to treat. So essentially, Julian out was the first person to outline both what a quasi-market was and secondly, to to really kind of look at the conditions for market success. And I think this set the agenda for future research. And I think we should remember that one of the things was that Julian was essentially working in an evidence-free vacuum. Um, and that he was basically coming up with a set of conditions, but no idea whether they would actually work or not, because there was no literature that had looked at this kind of massive kind of um, innovation in the way that public services were delivered. So in part, this was a real exercise in trust. Um, so as I say, it set the agenda for future research. And what I want to spend a little time about is asking, was Julian right? Does competition have benefits? I think this is particularly apposite at the moment, given that most of the press, Mr. Clegg and Mr. Cameron, are having second doubts, at least publicly. So has competition and choice improved outcomes in healthcare? The first thing that most of this evidence has emerged since Julian wrote, there was some that was around before Julian wrote, um, and that most of the evidence, in fact, even after two decades of quasi-market reforms in healthcare in England is from the US. And the second thing I think that's fair to say is that the evidence is mixed and really depends on the structure of the market, which again I think echoes something that Peter was saying, that these things in social policy are quite subtle. Institutions matter. The, design, the way you design your market, the way you design the institutions and the kind of prices that you have and the way you design that matters. And essentially, in healthcare markets, it appears when prices are fixed by a regulator, then buyers and sellers can get on and worry about quality. And that basically, when you introduce competition, improves outcomes. At least that's the US experience. So I want to look, though, at what's probably less well known and indeed still contentious, which is evidence from the UK. And I'm going to start with the current reforms, which essentially I think Julian was extremely significant in bringing about, in persuading the Blair administration that they did want to stick their necks up above the parapet, that they stopped wanting to do everything by command and control, and to put, essentially, some of Blair's views about public service reform into action in the healthcare and introduced, obviously, the healthcare reforms that have been running since about 2005-06. So the first question that colleagues and I asked on this was, well, actually, have these reforms had any impact? Have they actually changed care-seeking patterns? And I think there's quite a lot of kind of anecdotal evidence that suggests they have, but there's also quite a lot of pushback 
that's saying, oh, well, nothing's really happened. People have just kind of swapped places. Things aren't any better. What we did is we asked the question, first of all, can this kind of policy have any impact at all? Or is it the fact that every hospital in the UK is, is essentially a local monopoly? And so what we did was we plotted the hospitals in the UK by their kind of monopoly status. And um, the diagram on the left-hand side indicates for you all the hospitals in, the U in England, and then the colour indicates how competitive they are. Things that are light blue are more competitive than things that are dark blue, and things that are black are least competitive. And you can see, as you might expect, that places like Cornwall, um, the Lake District, and kind of some of the outer um, regions in terms of population density are less competitive, exactly what you'd expect. Healthcare is something where if you have more volume of patients living in an area, you tend to have more hospitals, especially after years of a planned system. But there's also some quite interesting exceptions, which I think illustrate some of Julian's points about providers and purchasers being willing to do things. And they are this set of hospitals down here. This is the South Coast. <coughs> They're all black. They all look, they are all essentially acting as local monopolies. Why are they acting as local monopolies? Because their local buyers only send to those hospitals. So then we said, fast forward, what happens after the reforms? Where do we see changes? And in this, we pick, we pick yellow for um, where there are least changes and red for where there are most changes in travel patterns of patients after the reforms. And what you can see is that those red dots are in big cities, but they're also round big cities, but the, particularly the kind of conurbation around Greater London. So they're all over here. I don't have a pointer, so I'd kind of go past Stuart's head. But you can see that those places have also experienced changes in travel patterns and changes in patient demand. So it appears that hospitals which previously were kind of dark blue or black have had things change after the reforms. So point number one, something has changed. Point number two, has this changed for the better? Or is it just kind of trundling around between different hospitals with various people being kicked out of the hospital they did want to use to another hospital? And we would argue no. What we also look at is we can see that patients who chose went to better hospitals post-reform. And that's based now on a number of studies of different services as well as all services. And then work by Zach Cooper, who's in the audience here at the LSE under Julian's direction and work by a, a separate team led by me, also found that post-reform, measures of some measures of quality rose in markets where competition was more possible. So in those markets where you see that competition is possible, quality appears to have risen, and patients appear to be choosing hospitals that have better outcomes rather than worse outcomes. We also find that length of stay fell, which is handy because length of stay is something you probably want to reduce. But we also find there's no overall increase in expenditure or activity per pound spent. And there's also, from other work by guys at York, there's no evidence of increase in inequity. So essentially, as far as we can see, and as far as um, the guys at um, the LSE have also found, there's no, that basically most of the um, changes following this policy appear to be, be either nothing or better. 
There's also evidence, also from um, work at the LSE, on management in NHS hospitals, where they actually look at something completely different, and maybe this talks to the question that was asked upstairs, which is that they surveyed NHS hospitals and found that better management was associated with better outcomes, a whole range of outcomes like death rates, waiting times, patient satisfaction, staff satisfaction, are all associated with better management. But secondly, that that better management is also associated with competition. So hospitals who have more competitors around them have better management, and that in turn feeds through to better outputs. Finally, there's evidence from the 1990s internal market. And in that internal market, I think, and this illustrates how important design is, which is obviously one of the things that Julian's been stressing. In that internal market, prices could be negotiated between hospitals, and quality was hardly observed at all. I think we all forget that um, before Gwyn Bevan, who's also in the room, went to the Care Quality Commission, there were very few measures of quality that a hospital uh, could look at or com compare themselves with or with other people. In the 1990s internal market, there were no quality measures. In fact, they were introduced in 1999, two years after that market had been abolished by Blair. What we find in that market is where hospitals are competing essentially on price, volume of activity and waiting times fell more in competitive markets. So competition had one positive effect, which was to reduce waiting times, and waiting times at that time were very long, but at the cost of a fall in quality. So what happened was hospitals competed very hard on volume and at the margins put less of their effort into quality and quality fell. It's not that hospitals deliberately set out to reduce quality, but you've only got a limited amount of staff and effort. They put it all into trying to get elective waiting times down. However, it's also worth saying that in the 1990s internal market, there was no real evidence of increase in equity, even though that's actually what Labour went to a platform on in 1997, that the internal market was somehow unfair. And there's not much evidence of that unfairness. So in summary, I think there's some evidence that competition can bring benefits. But I think what also is obvious from other areas in which you run competitive experiments, for example, school reform, is that benefits can take time to set in. You get all the costs up front, as Julian pointed out, with issues around transaction costs. And I think in Britain there's been a lack of willingness to let experiments run. In fact, I think you'll, you'll agree with me that having seen the quotes that Julian started with, that we're very far at the moment from Julian's vision of a full quasi-market. And in fact, we seem almost in public debate to have stepped backwards from that very radical idea that he was analyzing in 1991. Thank you, Carol. It's always good to hear of something good coming out of Birmingham beside the nation's favorite football team, or at least the favorite football team of Prince William and our Prime Minister. Um, 
Julian. Thank you. Um, well, uh, let me express my thanks to Carol and also um, a more general appreciation of Carol's work. Um, I think Carol is the Frankly, I think she is the leading um, uh, empirical economist uh, working in the health field, and indeed across many fields um, in uh, in Britain today, and indeed um, um, throughout throughout the world. And uh, she has done an enormous amount of work. I find her, I cite her work almost more than anybody else's, which she might regard as slightly dubious. So. <laughs> and it's not always, I may say, because she supports my most cherished beliefs. There have been occasions when she's actually attacked them um, with her empirical work. Um, however, um, she's a remarkable, uh, a remarkable economist. Um, and she was actually reminding me when we before we came in about um, the last occasion that we were both in the same room together, and indeed in this room together, um, and it relates to the point she was making that that the the uh, the reforms that uh, Kenneth Clark uh, uh, introduced in 1991 were massively more radical than anything that has gone on since, and it is a point that Nick Timmins uh, has made uh, in the Financial Times. Um, and uh, in fact, actually, um, Kenneth Clark uh, in, I don't know, it must have been about 1991, I guess, came down here to give a talk uh, and um, was confronted, uh, he began his talk, and he was confronted by a major demonstration um, from the Socialist Workers' Party, I think, um, uh, who at one point began to rush the stage, I mean, indicating the degree of uh, what was going on. And... Um, I remember uh, the the organisers. They 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 predicted something like this might happen, and actually they positioned a number of us in various places where we were supposed to do something about this. <laughs> um, so I, I I stood up and sort of endeavoured to to insert my body between Kenneth Clark and a woman, indeed, who was thundering down the thundering down the aisle. Um, uh, to I, I thought I don't I don't think I want this to be on television. You know, but, uh, protecting Kenneth Clark at the time, of course, the Thatcher government or the, the remnants of the Thatcher government was not the most popular among anything. Um, but actually, uh, the woman knocked me over extremely fast. <laughs> uh, Kenneth Clark whisked out of the auditorium <laughs> very fast, and I didn't appear on television, which was much my great relief. Um, but I do think, on a more serious note, I mean, I think Carol's quite right that. Um, what we're seeing at the moment is a movement back from that, with Nick Clegg um, saying we mustn't have competition, we must go back to collaboration, um, uh, with, uh, in, in terms of the, the providers, the, the doctors' associations, the unions and so on, in full cry uh, about uh, going back to a system um, uh, and a, uh, to a system of essentially a trust model in some ways uh, and a, away from a competitive system. And I think the government is, and if they go down this route, the government will be making a huge mistake. We will see all the hard-won gains that, uh, that have occurred over the past uh, uh, five, ten years. The improvements in waiting times, the, well, the fall in waiting times, the improvements in quality in, of treatment, the improvements in efficiency, the sort of things that uh, Carol has been talking about and Zach Cooper and others have demonstrated here at the LSE. Uh, and we're going to lose all that. Uh, and, um, uh, and I think that we will, there's a real danger that we're seeing that, uh, that going to happen again. However, I suspect there are probably people in this room who may not wholly agree with that. Callum, Callum. Uh, and uh, so we'll just open to, uh, if anyone's got any questions or points they'd like to make. Please. I'm Bevan, London School of Economics. It's a very great pleasure to be here this afternoon. 
and to pay tribute to Julian's fantastic work, as you were saying, Stuart, not just in a major scholar in public policy, but also is, is actually uh, an advisor to government and influence of policy. Uh, my comment, I think Carol and Julian will be expecting this, is about, um, in, in Julian's book about the other invisible hand, he lays out these different models that might be used, and two have been mentioned, which is altruism or trust or markets. But the other he emphasizes is a process of hierarchy and targets and holding providers to account. And the other, which uh, both Carol and Julian know I'm very fond of, and my students here, about naming and shaming through reputation effects. And Carol's also done very important work on that in the natural experiment between England and Scotland. And uh, my concern at the moment, I mean, what the Blair government did was to abandon altruism of the third way and Wales and the other, Scotland and the other devolved countries continued with that and to go for hierarchy and targets and naming and shaming and then they added choice and competition and what this government has done is to abandon hierarchy and targets and naming and shaming in healthcare and is hovering over whether you're going to have competition or not. I just wonder whether you think that competition alone is adequate uh, and the other point is this work that Carol's colleagues have done at Bristol on school league tables that suggests that those have been enormously powerful in improved performance in England, like for Wales to achieve that without school details, they need about a third time as many teachers as they do in England. And what your assessment is of the relative effects, it's a difficult question this, Carl, I should have given you warning, of naming and shame against markets? You can ask it. You can ask it. Yes, it's your day, Julian. I think you should answer this. You start. <laughs> I, I again would like to pay tribute to, to Gwyn's work, Josh, we're all patting each other on the back today. Uh, but um, uh, uh, again, I think Gwyn's done some very important work in this area. Um, and um, I think I'm, uh, I tend to believe that the uh, market competition will do better than naming and shaming partly because of the uh, because there are real incentive effects to do with the flows of money, the flows of resources and the naming and shaming the, the schools that do badly and the hospitals that do badly don't lose resources in consequence um, and the ones that do well don't gain resources um, so there's no uh, that particular area of incentive is not there whereas under competitive markets you do get these flows of resources um, on the other hand I am impressed by um, the work that uh, Gwyn and others have done that suggests that naming and shaming does work. Um, and uh, uh, it, as you, you, you cited the Welsh examples, and there are other examples too. So um, I think uh, if I can do a typical academic um, uh, uh, avoidance here and say, well, um, um, yes, I think on the one hand uh, <laughs> and on the other, uh, I think the jury is out. Um, I think my response is clearly naming and shaming has a role, but one of the roles that naming and shaming has is simply to put people in some kind of rank ordering. And that, that markets also have that. Essentially what you have within markets, particularly markets in healthcare, is a ranking of hospitals that comes out. There's, markets in healthcare don't work unless you have a lot of quality indicators that go with them. So typically markets in healthcare don't work unless you have a lot of information about the providers. 
doctors are the most competitive guys I've ever met. They spend five years training and then another five years fighting for the job they want. They compete like hell. You produce league tables on doctors and the people that pour over the most are not consumers, are not buyers, but are the hospitals themselves, either the managers or particularly the docs. So I think you can use the element inputs in naming of shaming of competitiveness also within a market. And indeed, I don't think you ever have healthcare markets work without that element there. You need the league tables. You need the public data on performance. And you need that to be at surgeon level, at doctor level, and as at lower level as possible. And whilst providers may then push back and say, oh, it's all wrong, if it's publicly out there, they have an incentive to make it right. They have an incentive to get their returns right. They have an incentive to do things. Of course, they also have an incentive to cream skim when that happens. But you have that with naming and shaming as well. You have that either way. In terms of the kind of exam question, people, I wish people wouldn't even think about this exam question. But I think my answer on the exam question is, in the short term, particularly in a health service in the UK, where everybody's trained to act to the current <coughs> political imperative, command and control works because everybody knows that if they don't obey the command and control, they won't go on to the next nice job. However, in the long term, I don't think you can keep doing command and control without everybody getting command and control fatigue. And what they do is the whole group in the middle hardly ever put their heads above a parapet. There's always some leaders. There's always some kind of completely basket cases that you kind of eliminate by command and control. But you don't incentivize the middle group. On the other hand, if you look at my maps, there are quite a few guys that are the middle group. I won't name those hospitals, but we all know them, particularly those of us who live in the southeast. And that in the long run, competition will do more. We'll take one. We'll perhaps we'll take both of you. If you could keep your questions fairly short, and then we'll move to our third speaker. <coughs> um, hi, Anna Dixon. Also, have uh, had the privilege of being supervised for my PhD by uh, Julian, and so great privilege to be here. Um, also, uh, done joint research on choice and had some pretty heated discussions on this very topic. Um, and uh, I was uh, just interested, really, um, as you know, the work that we've done on on patient choice uh, using more qualitative methods has actually shown that uh, GPs are very reluctant around offering choice. They're very sticky in their referrals and that the patients when they are offered a choice are pretty loyal uh, to local providers and don't pay attention to the sort of quality information which um, as Carol said you yourself have said is very important to the effective functioning of quasi markets and I suppose I just wanted to sort of say at heart are you more an economist or a sociologist you um, Peter talked about your interdisciplinary you love quoting Carol, and obviously Zach's uh, been one of your very successful PhD students doing the sort of econometric analysis to show that competition's having this positive effect. Um, here I am with some more qualitative uh, um, data that perhaps challenges um, whether patient choice and competition are really happening in practice, and can you reconcile the two, and where will you uh, tie your colours, uh, which of the disciplines? I'll take the other one question. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we will make sure that we can get an answer to that. Uh, hi, uh, Lee Caldwell from INON. We're a behavioural consultancy. Um, 
I think that the quasi-markets um, concept seems quite well designed to respond to a couple of problems from classical economics uh, of agency and uh, information, uh, really. Uh, but I wonder whether the, what we've recently discovered in the last 10 years about behavioral economics and decision-making, whether that would change your conception of uh, the best way to make a quasi-market work. Would you modify uh, the, the recommendation in any way in light of that? Um, I, uh, on, that, on that last question, yes, um, I, I do think behavioral economics is very interesting. I've been doing some work in that area myself, although more in the area of, um, of trying to think of ways of using it to change people's behavior uh, relative to environmental issues we talked about before or, re or relative to issues like obesity or, um, or smoking. Um, I do think it, it uh, and I have begun to think a little bit about does it, does it change the arguments in terms of, uh, of quasi-markets and people making choices in that. Um, I think my, my feeling is at the moment that the, the kind of effects that we're talking about um, are not sufficiently large or, um, or indeed sufficiently relevant to those kind of choices to significantly get it. But I, actually, I think it's a very interesting area of future research, and um, I'm planning to do a bit more work on that. Um, um, on Anna's point, um, I wasn't really expecting uh, my PhD students to be uh, to, to ask me the difficult questions. Uh, um, um, the uh, I suppose what I do feel, I, I mean, there are two points. One is, are there enough patients exercising choice to make the difference? And are they making the choice on the, on the right grounds? Um, um, as, and I suppose my belief is that, that uh, we don't need, I don't think we need many patients to make choices to have the right incentive effect. There is a statistic that I quote, and it's not evidence-based because I cannot track it down. Um, but that says um, you only need, in any given market, you only need about 5% of consumers to make the make relevant choices to have the appropriate incentive uh, consequences for the providers. Uh, if anybody instantly does know what that is, if they could tell me at the reception afterwards where, where that figure comes from. Um, but it is interesting, I mean, I think Carol's, um, Carol's material showing that uh, you do actually, um, that there has been some change in behaviour. You actually do have patients changing behaviour, which seems to me compliments because about 50% of the patients that you interviewed um, had actually been offered choice, as I understand it. Uh, it was about that order, wasn't it? 50% had been offered choice. And, um, so uh, uh, I, think, I think that bit's consistent. Um, your findings are consistent with the kind of uh, thing that Carol found. Um, and so the sociologist and the economist lining up at that point. The point about choice of um, the, the things they make. Oh, and incidentally, just one, one little point about that. One of the interesting, very interesting things I thought about your research was that um, I think that most of us would have predicted, and it relates to Carol's work too, that um, you would have got most patients uh, making choices and travelling furthest or travelling most frequently in urban areas where there was, is a lot of choice. Um, but as I recall, I think in your study, and I think you found it too, it tends to be in the semi-rural areas um, that actually people travel the furthest in choices. And, um, and it, when you think about it, of course, that makes sense. People who live in rural areas are used to traveling great distances to, for their services. Um, and paradoxically, it may be there that we might see the greatest impact of choice um, rather than, than in the urban areas. Um, but I do think there is a question about what patients choose on, on, on the 
do they choose the right thing to provide the, do they choose on the basis of the, the marble corridors, the marble halls that they uh, encounter when they enter a hospital, I do remember that specifically, I remember walking into the uh, in the States, walking to the University of Pennsylvania um, uh, a hospital uh, and being very struck by it, it was a gloriously marble uh, interior. Are people really impressed by that um, and do not think about the quality of the, um, of the actual service being provided, which is necessary for the, for the market to work? Uh, and I think that has, to, that has to come. I mean, basically, um, we have to provide the information on quality uh, and we have to try and make sure that patients indeed do use that or GPs acting as their agents use it in order to make the right assessment. Can I, can I add to that? And it's again work from the LSE um, of an economist, um, Stefan Seeler, who's doing work with me. And he looked at travel, by, travel for patients who needed coronary artery bypass grafts, which is a very serious illness. And those patients going for that are in a pretty poor state of health. He actually found that patients post the reforms, those who traveled were choosing to go to hospitals which had better success rates in terms of mortality, and that the people who were choosing more were in fact the sicker. So I think that there aren't many choosers. On the, at the, on the average, not much has changed in cabbage treatment but it has changed for a subset of people, and that subset are not the weller patients, but in fact the iller patients. And I think that fits, you know, that fits very much with what you find, which is not much change at the margin. But if the change at the margin is by the patients you care most about, those who are iller, rather than the idea that it's the kind of less ill who are making choices, I think that's a good thing, and I think it's signaling that something is happening somebody is making a decision on that patient's behalf, which means that they're choosing places that are more appropriate for them. I think we're going to have to move on, but I will call you next time. If you <coughs> Thank you. So we're going to move on to our, our third speaker, our third engager, perhaps, um, Nick Timmins, who of course, again, people will know. <laughs> Very nice slides. Um, where did that come from? Have you got it where you want? Nice. <laughs> uh, so Nick Timmins is the public policy editor of the Financial Times, of course, a visiting professor in public management at King's College London a senior associate of the Nuffield Trust and the current president of the Social Policy Association. Uh, among many other things, Nick is the author of The Five Giants, a biography of the welfare state, which is a narrative history of the British welfare state from, from beverage uh, to more or less the present day, uh, as well as a body of work published in, for example, the British Medical Journal, Health Affairs, and other very well-respected organs. Prior to joining the FT, in 1996. Nick worked for The Independent, for The Times, and for the science journal Nature. And Nick is going to talk to us on the topic of power and influence, words and ideas. Thank you. Well, I'm very honoured to be here and asked to contribute to this. And it's very, it's grand, it is indeed grand to be here. Uh, but I do need to start with a confession. 
I mean, despite the fact that Julian is tall, dashing, handsome, powerful personality, and a genuinely grand name, I don't actually recall when I met him. But I do recall when I first read him. It was in the early 1980s when I was making the transition from being a science and medicine reporter who'd also been a Labour correspondent in the winter of discontent to someone with a broader interest in the welfare state. And what I read, of course, was the strategy of equality. Now, its analysis, which has since been modified somewhat, although not discarded, has become so much part of the mainstream that it's hard now to remember its impact. Julian's conclusion, by way of a snowstorm of statistics of the sort that have made even Peter Townsend proud, was, and I quote, that the strategy of equality through public provision has failed. Looking at health, education, social services and transport, Julian demonstrated that almost all public expenditure on the social services in Britain benefits the better off to a greater extent than the poor. Now, I'm not quite sure what impact Julian thought it would have, but coming when it did, the effect was somewhat seismic. There had, of course, been before plenty of attention paid to the interaction of the middle class and the welfare state. I mean, Richard Titmus, in whose name Julian holds his chair, had extolled the virtues of having the sharp elbows of the middle class tied into collective provision. A service for the poor will be a poor service, he argued. And in the social division of welfare, Titmus had drawn attention to what he dubbed two other welfare states, the tax reliefs given for children and their dependents, and the occupational welfare state of luncheon vouchers, if you can remember those, and private pensions, and plus then a very limited amount of private health care cover, all of which, he argued, benefited the middle classes more than the poor. These fiscal and occupational welfare states reinforced inequality rather than reducing it, Titmus argued. Just a year before Julian's book, Frank Field had taken this argument to its, uh, what you might, describe as a, some, you might describe as a somewhat extreme apotheosis, identifying not three welfare states but five, arguing that unearned income and inheritance plus private education and by then a much expanded level of private medical insurance needed to be counted in. But there remained a broad underlying assumption that the original Beveridgean welfare state was highly redistributive, benefiting the less well-off much more than the middle. <laughs> Julian's book blew something of a hole in this argument. These welfare services were indeed, as they are now, redistributive, but the fact was they still benefited the better off to a greater extent than the poor. Now, timing is everything, both in terms of ideas and politics. And the politics of the time was pretty poisonous. Uh, it was Margaret Thatcher's first term, it was in full swing, unemployment had hit three million, public expenditure was under attack, and the economy was being drastically reshaped. Labour had just elected Michael Foote as its leader and had come within a whisker of making Tony Benn its deputy leader. Benn's thesis, of course, was that the 1974 to 1979 Labour government had engaged in a long act of betrayal, and that if only that Labour government and the 1999 manifesto had been more left-wing, then Labour would have walked it and Maggie would never have been elected. So Julian's book played to camps at both extremes of the spectrum. To the left, his findings were proof that Labour had let the poor down, and what was needed was a much more revolutionary redistribution of both income and wealth. And to the Tory right, it underlined utterly their argument that the welfare state had failed, and if only everything was better targeted and more means tested, all would be well. The welfare state would cost less, the poor would do better, and the middle class would pay less tax. Those who held a somewhat more nuanced view in the middle, I suspect Julian himself included, were less struggling to make their case. 
and Julian had acquired his first dose of proper fame, not to mention notoriety. But it's an important example of power and influence, of the impact of words and ideas and analysis, and of the importance of timing. And the influence of that book lives on. I mean, today we still fret that 30 years on, those living in better-off areas still receive higher intervention rates for some important health service procedures, such as joint replacement and angioplasty, than those living in more deprived areas. It's an idea and an issue that has lasted. And Arin Bevan once came up with a great quote about power and influence, which despite my very best endeavours, I've not managed to track down. But it went something like this, that when he was a trade union official in South Wales, he said he was trying to work out where the power lay. So he became a local councillor and discovered that not much of it lay there. It looked to lie with the county. So he became a county councillor, only to discover the same thing. So he became an MP, only to discover that uh, power and its coattails had disappeared around the corner again. Uh, it's, an it's an analysis that all British Prime Ministers would share. I mean, such are the checks and balances and convolutions and confusions in the British constitutional way of life, even in these days of rather more presidential government, that a British Prime Minister rapidly discovers that they their only real power lies in two things, the power of patronage and the power of ideas. Patronage is the hiring and firing of colleagues, and how well they do that plays a large part in ultimately deciding how well they do. And the other key weapon is the power of ideas and words. However coherently, how coately, they can present a picture of what their government is doing and how far those ideas, and this can only be judged properly in the full light of, in the full light of retrospect, prove to have the power of history on their side. Which is why timing matters. Now, Julian clearly from early on wanted some influence and later on, I suspect, would like to have had some power. In that, he comes from a long and honourable tradition at the LSE from Beveridge, a former director through Titmus, Brian Abel Smith, John Hills and many others, not to mention a mighty string of economists on the E side of the LSE. I mean, the LSE has never been an ivory tower. And timing does matter, for in the five or six years just before and after the strategy of equality was published, Julian and a wide range of others from what might loosely be described as the left were exploring the idea of vouchers as a means both of freeing up state provision, introducing more of an element of choice, and helping ensure, so to speak, that the better off got a more equal, the less well off got a more equal share of the welfare state's spoils. The ideas included a graduate tax, vouchers for childcare, health and school education, with in some cases their values loaded towards the better off. But the idea of vouchers had been captured by the right. While Julian and others saw them purely as a mechanism, an administrative tool, if you like that could be designed in different ways to have more or less redistributive effects. To the, left, to the left, the idea was inextricably associated with Milton Friedman and the Chicago School, and of course their economic theories, as the left saw it, had done immense damage to Britain. And of course Keith Joseph had famously tried and failed to introduce vouchers into schools. So to the left, the idea of a voucher was associated with the devil incarnate, and Labour, in any case, in the 1980s, had lost its ability to tap into academic thinking. The result was that however well expressed these ideas were, however well argued, they fell, from the left-wing point of view, on stony ground. 25 years on, of course, vouchers and their myriad derivatives, personal budgets in social care, and possibly one day in health care, are part of the mainstream. We've seen them come, and in some cases go, in childcare, training and social care, and only today Alan Milburn has been advocating them in schools. 
Julian's interest in such things stems in part, of course, from being an economist by training. Now, in the social sciences, he is far from unique in that, but even today, it makes him relatively unusual. And part of the why, reason why such analysis appeared to me then, as it does now, and to the coalition government at the moment, at the time of spectacular spending cuts, is that it asks a different question to the, many of the traditional ones. I mean, the traditional challenge from the left is that if only we, we being the state and taxpayers, spent more, all would be well. The counter-argument from the right is that if only we spent less, we again being the state and the taxpayers, then all would be well. The point about at least some of Julian's work is it asks a far more challenging question. Namely, how do we spend the money we are already spending more effectively? I mean, Ron Kerr, these days, Sir Ron Kerr, who ran hospitals in some of the parts of Bristol near which or in which Julian lives, once said, not entirely tongue-in-cheek, that I'm much less interested in whether next year's uplift for the hospital is 3 or 4 or 5% than in how we spend the £300 million we are already spending better. There's probably far more value in that than in the dollop of money from the next spending round. And a lot of Julian's work in a sense addresses that. How do you spend what you've got better? So such skills, however, and the ability to apply economic analysis to social problems is nothing without the ability to communicate the outcome. And one of Julian's great strengths has been his ability to do that. In the early 1990s, in the state of welfare, Julian, along with John Hills, Howard Glenister, and many others, analysed what had happened to the welfare state under Thatcher. Now, it's a mighty tome. It's stuffed with numbers to make its case. But it was Julian's phrase that summed it up, that made it kind of saleable and communicatable. And that was, and I quote, that despite the economic hurricane and the ideological blizzard to which the welfare state had been subjected, what was remarkable was not how little of it had survived, but how much, and therefore what that told you about it. And the ability to find those phrases and to sum up a complex argument simply often with nice juxtaposition like that. It's a powerful part of what Julian has done. It's helped him to communicate ideas. Now, in 20 minutes, I haven't got the time to review everything that Julian's been up to, but in seeking power and influence, and in doing his duty, of course, he's been a member of a health authority, the vice chair of an NHS trust, a commissioner on the Commission for Healthcare Improvement, and much else. My bet is that in none of those roles, despite what one might, along with an iron bed and imagine the hope, did he ever feel he had much power Influence, yes, but often not even a lot of that. The one position you might imagine that would deliver real power was being Tony Blair's health advisor in number 10, at the right hand, with the prime ministerial writ. Well, Julian can speak for himself, but as I've already noted, there are limits to prime ministerial writ. I doubt that Julian ever felt he had real power. There's a story that may or may not be true that very early on, Gordon Brown, then the Chancellor, sent over a bunch of bright young things to try to take Julian to the cleaners over the economics of choice, the Chancellor being none too keen on the idea. Rather than telling the government what it needs to do, real power, Julian found himself defending the ideas from first principles. Now, of course, much of what he was arguing for then did, of course, come to pass, or has come to pass, or maybe about to come to pass, depending on the pause in the health bill. Uh, though after a notable lacuna when Gordon Brown got his revenge by becoming Prime Minister. <laughs> but the arguments were won by the influence of words and ideas rather than by the direct exercise of power. And I suspect whatever happens in the short term as a result of the government's pause on its health bill, my guess is power and influence of these ideas, the judicious use of choice and competition to drive improvement in public services, will live on, or at the very least live on to fight another day. 
because in a sense they are an idea. Julian was talking about Ken Clark in, in, in his reforms. I mean, these ideas have been current since 19, the mid-1980s, and they come, you know, the tide comes in and goes out a bit, but the ideas live on. Now, one can't discuss the influence of words and ideas in Julian's case without discussing knights, knaves, pawns, and queens. I'm not alone, and I know Julian struggled in trying to find a completely perfect analogy from either chess or bridge or the stratification of medieval society that are all mixed up in that title, uh, subtitle to his motivation, agency, and public policy. But the influence of this book, or more importantly these ideas, since they were first set out in Julian's inaugural lecture in 1997, even though the book did not appear until 2003, has been pervasive. They are, after all, partly what got him the Downing Street job. The debate about motivation and agency across a huge range of public policy has been raised to new height by it. Its power, I would suggest, lies in the way it manages to blend ideas and analysis from political philosophy, economics, psychology, and the social sciences into one readable and pretty coherent whole, and that is no mean achievement. It stops short of trying to, of the mistake of trying to produce a one-size-fits-all theory or practical set of measures for the whole of public services. Rather, it illustrates how a set of ideas can shape a large agenda by our horses for courses application of a better understanding of what drives the behaviour of a wide range of players on the public policy stage. Not just professionals, politicians and taxpayers, but citizens in the many forms they take at various points in their life, as parents, patients, students, recipients of social care, taxpayers, and of course sometimes professionals themselves. And again, it's an illustration of how words, not just ideas, the ability to use words to express them matters if you seek power and influence. A book that was merely titled Motivation, Agency and Public Policy would never have got off the dustier racks of the Lionel Robbins Library. A book that can make a hospital consultant reflect on how, in different parts of their life, they are at one and the same time, a knight, a knave, a pawn, and indeed a queen, reaches far further. Now, of course, this is ongoing. In case this sounds too much like an obituary, I mean, Julian's still working away <laughs> at these things, uh, marrying ideas from behavioural economics to his own analysis, uh, and has been doing that until recently as chairman of Health England, and as someone who still rather shamefully smokes, I do look forward to the day when Julian has won and I have to buy an annual licence and it will be able to buy tobacco. <laughs> he also chairs an advisory body to the Coalition on How to Make Public Sector Mutuals a Reality. Personally, I have nothing against the idea, save that I struggle to understand how mutuals, which almost by definition are a bottom-up self-help creation, can be constructed from a top-down decision to make them. But of course, both of these jobs are a matter of influence. Now, power, certainly from academia and in the social sciences, is hard to come by. But as Julian's work demonstrates in spades, if I can revert to the bridge analogy, influence can be real to the point where it can certainly for a moment and sometimes for repeated moments become power. Just a few weeks after the government published its health bill, Zach Cooper, who I regard as something of a Julian in the making, Carol Proper and Julian himself, in Julian's case from the ski slopes of Europe, as it happened, latched onto the clause in the bill promoting price competition on tariff services in the NHS. The combined effect of the three of them was that after a frantic and ineffectual defence, the clause was dropped, although, of course, in practice, price competition in the long run may not be. But the clause would not have gone had the words not been found 
to express the ideas, the evidence around price competition clearly. And this was one of those moments when influence became power. Uh, something that Bevan, who was famously described by Kenneth Morgan as an artist in the uses of power, would instantly have recognised. Words and ideas, when well combined, create influence. Influence is as close as most of us ever get to power, and Julian's had loads of it. Thank you. Yes, I think it is very interesting reflecting on the, uh, the, the respective roles of influence and power, and indeed the respective roles of an academic or uh, an advisor or indeed a minister. Um, uh, I'd be quite interested to hear, there are, um, uh, Tessa Blackstone is in the audience, who was a minister in, in the Labour government, and James O'Shaughnessy is here. Um, who only was here, I think he might have just moved on, actually, <laughs> uh, uh, from the number 10, currently the number 10 policy unit, um, uh, about the ro these roles and how it works. I must say, working in number 10 was a strange experience. Uh, uh, outside number 10, you were effectively a god. Um, people, not because you had really uh, your own godlike qualities, but because people thought you spoke for God or, or the Prime Minister, as the case may be, and you had his authority behind you. Um, inside Number 10, you're a slave. Um, you're a slave to the Prime Minister, but uh, who has, in a sense, bought your time to do almost anything um, he would like you to do. Um, but also, uh, you're a slave, but... but the Prime Minister himself is also something of a slave, and a slave to events. I mean, Macmillan's famous quote about uh, events dominating one's activities, you do find yourself endlessly in responsive mode, trying to deal with the latest flare-up that's occurred. Um, the, in my case, it was always it was MRSA, MRSA in hospitals. Uh, I'd switch on the Today programme, and I'd hear that some other dreadful uh, MRSA scandal had emerged, usually led by him, I may say, but <laughs> Nick Timmins had unearthed some dreadful event, um, and uh, you were having to try and uh, having to try and you know that 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 long strategic paper you were going to write about the role of competition and choice um, uh, was not going to happen. You were going to have to spend your day trying to work out what the prime minister should say uh, or do about it. Um, so. Uh, I, I'm, I, I am increasingly beginning to think that actually the role that ac academics uh, outside of government possibly have more influence and power at the end of the day than academics working inside, inside government, precisely for the kind of reasons uh, the, the, that you were saying. Uh, but it'd be, again, it would be rather interesting to hear what um, uh, other people uh, think uh, who have had some experience of this. So we're we're open for questions. Yes. The microphones come to you. Yes. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you on one thing, Julian. Mm. I don't think that uh, academics outside government have any power at all. Um, I don't see what the mechanisms they have to wield power. They don't. They have no levers to pull but they might have more influence in certain circumstances. But I think the circumstances have to be right for them to have influence. Um, they have to, first of all, have an audience amongst those who do actually wield some power, whether prime ministers or ministers in the cabinet or even ministers of state. So they have to have a way in. 
to get those people to listen. And that in itself can be a very difficult thing to achieve. And then once they've got them to listen, um, they've then got to persuade them that their view of what is desirable um, and what will produce outcomes that ministers might want is one that has some validity because there will be many, many other views circling around the system um, and many vested interests that ministers may not want to challenge. It's extraordinarily complex how policies are made and the power of ideas is often extremely limited and we have to, I think, really be aware of that uh, because of vested interests, because of the sort of power of the system to keep going as it is rather than be changed. Um, and because you often simply cannot persuade your colleagues in government um, who have a different view to the one that you might have. And that can happen within a department um, as a minister, or it can happen in parliament where you have to take your, your, your backbenchers and your parliamentary colleagues um, through with you. And it's, of course, not such a problem if you have a huge majority, but if you have a small majority, uh, it can be a very big problem. <coughs> So I think all academics, and having been one myself, need to be rather humble um, about the influence and power that they're likely to exert, because at the end of the, of the day, um, it's horribly limited. Mm. And I can just, sort of, perhaps I should also add to that, that the powers of ministers um, are also immensely constrained, <laughs> um, even though people out there might think that it's so easy for them to do this, that, or the other. Um, actually, the constraints are huge. And the constraints within Whitehall, of course, um, are enormous. You have, to, you have to persuade the Treasury if it involves spending money. Um, you have to broker agreements with other departments when what you're trying to do cuts across more than one department, which is very frequently the case in the area of social policy. I have stopped that. Mm. I think we just have one more that might clip in, Julian. Just at the front here, if you, you've got the microphone, please. Right in the middle. Thanks very much. I'm uh, Zach Cooper. I was, and, and I think it probably always will be, a, uh, a student of Julian. And I, with all this talk of influence, I think it's probably wise to, to talk about another form of influence that, that Julian's had, another contribution, which has been as an educator. You know, as I sort of look around, there are a lot of folks here who including myself, have studied with Julian and, and learned so much from him. And uh, I think we all need to say thanks. And, and I think that might be one of his, his biggest contributions, that he's created so many students who, who want to think like him and learn from him and, and learn to be analysts like him. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Zach. And I mean, I have to um, bow to Tessa's authority. I, I, and I think, and I agree with with most of what you said. I suppose. Uh, I I think uh, one area where I think um, academics can be quite powerful um, is is being destructive. Um, I have heard um, academics on the Today program. Uh, it's always possible to have a list of problems with any policy. No policy is perfect. It's, a, it's always possible to devise a list of problems. And I've heard academics just listing all the difficulties of a particular area. And, and the, the, the John Humphreys or the Evan Davis or whoever it is, is uh, quizzing them, never says, which I'm dying, I'm shouting at the radio and saying, well, what would you do? <laughs> 
Um, and uh, quite often, I think they can be destructive. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, in your general point, I think that that both they and indeed ministers are um, even ministers are const- heavily constrained um, in terms of the power. The NR and Bevin quote you gave: the power is always just round the corner somewhere. Somebody else has it. I think is a, a crucial point. Thank you. I think we're, we're pretty well on time, which is uh, quite remarkable. People have kept very well to time, and we have. Uh, one last contribution, a fourth engager with, uh, with the theme this afternoon, and that's uh, Professor Albert Wheel, who's going to speak on the topic of social contracts for all and everything. Uh, Albert has been Professor of Political Theory and Public Policy at University College London since the early part of 2010. He currently holds an ESRC professorial fellowship, which is allowing him to carry out research on the theme social contract, deliberative democracy, and public policy. Um, he has a very wide range of publications, as you might expect from his current job title. They've been concentrated in the areas of political theory and public policy, especially the theory of justice and the theory of democracy, as well as health policy and comparative environmental policy. His principal publications include quality and social policy, political theory and social policy, cost and choice in healthcare, and more recently, uh, a a revised edition of a book on democracy and with others, the theory of choice and also environmental governance in (coughs) Europe. Uh, Between 1986 and 1990, Professor Wheel was a member of the advisory board of the King's Fund Health Policy Institute and he chaired the King's Fund Grants Committee from 1997 to 2001. Uh, From 1994 to 1996, Albert chaired a working party on animal to human transplants the Ethics of Xenotransplantation, which was established by the Nuffield Council on Bioethics. And I think I'm right in saying that Albert was later a member of that council from 1998 to 2004. Professor Wheel is currently a Vice President of the British Academy, where he has special responsibility for public policy matters, and he also currently chairs the advisory board of the ESRC's Genomics Forum. So thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. And can I, can I apologise, first of all, for being late? I was actually in the process of um, assessing students for most of the day, uh, which was a long-standing commitment that I had. But I did, I did pick up quite a bit of the conversation when I came in earlier. And uh, as so often with conversations in which Julian's involved, you change your mind during the course of the conversation. So, but I'm going to continue with my, I'm going to continue with my text um, anyway. Uh, I did want to say what a great, what a great pleasure and privilege um, it is to be here today. Um, actually, not least because I've always thought of Julian as one of the best dressed men in social policy. <laughs> John Snow may have the flashy ties, but Julian has the much more discreet, uh, uh, discreet ones. Um, mind you, saying that somebody's the best dressed man in social policy is not setting a very high standard. <laughs> I, I also do this with some trepidation. Um, I, you get to a certain stage in life where you do this sort of gig quite, quite frequently. And um, I always think back to that scene in Woody Allen's film Annie Hall, if you remember, where the Woody Allen character, played by Woody Allen, is, is queuing for, in the cinema behind somebody who talks about Marshall McLuhan's work and gets into a conversation with this man and says, uh, he doesn't really understand Marshall McLuhan. 
And he says, I, I understand Marshall McClure because I teach uh, communications at New York University, at which, at which point Woody Allen brings on Marshall McClure to explain <laughs> that he hasn't understood his work at all. And, and when you have the living voice uh, in the room, you're very conscious of the possibility of making, making a mistake. So uh, anyway, I'm going to talk about uh, Julian as a political philosopher. We've, we've heard much as a social policy expert uh, and as an economist um, but I want to talk about his political philosophy because I think this, is, uh, this underlies much of uh, his subsequent policy, his, his policy viewpoints. And of course there are two views about how those who are concerned with philosophy rate, uh, relate to public life. There's a very old, well-established view that the most important thing with anybody concerned with philosophy is to keep them as far away from public affairs as possible. Uh, this, this goes back to Plato, um, but it was also the view that was expressed in what you might call the other tradition of the LSE, which was where Michael Oakeshott was professor of government and thought that the last thing you needed was rationalism in politics. This was the, this was the enemy to be avoided. Because the other view is that Philosophers and those with a taste for philosophy have something to, to bring to public policy uh, and indeed to practical life more, more generally. So the earliest example that I've been able to come up with is uh, Aristotle's discussion of uh, Thales of Miletus, who, as um, Aristotle put it, from Thales, from his knowledge of the stars, was able to predict that there would be a good olive harvest that year. And he bought up an option on all the olive presses uh, who says that uh, future speculation in commodities is a new invention, and uh, was able to make a large amount, uh, large amount of money from this uh, speculative enterprise. Um, of course, as Aristotle then went on to remark, uh, this, what this shows is that philosophers can make money if they choose, but they choose not to because their mind is normally on higher things. So I think if we, if we were looking in contemporary Britain for somebody who has simultaneously engaged in deep and serious questions of political philosophy, but also has done this from a practical point of view. I don't think we could find uh, a better example uh, than Julian. And I think one of Julian's abiding strengths has always been his concern to get the conceptual uh, analysis right. Now, whether this is his Norman ancestry or not, I don't know. Uh, his Norman ancestry would suggest an infusion of what British politicians like to call Cartesian rationality uh, in his thinking. But I think it's clear that Julian has always been concerned with conceptual foundations. And I think one of the reasons why I found the strategy of equality so striking as a book was its concern to demarcate the precise senses in which we might be thinking about equality uh, in, in public policy. So, so what I want to do um, today is to pick up on this philosophical aspect of Julian's work. I do this with some trepidation in a policy audience uh, on questions of philosophy and policy, there are typically, I think, divergent inclinations. Uh, those involved in policy are normally delighted when those with very different premises come to very similar conclusions, uh, whereas those involved in philosophy are normally very excited when those with very similar premises come to rather different uh, conclusions. Um, but I think that premises and chains of argument that lead to practical conclusions are important, and uh, that's what I want to pick up on today. And I was prompted to think along these lines by rereading the discussion of uh, Julian's account of philosophical method um, in Equity and Choice, 
which I think was the first book, really, in which he started to develop ideas. And it's very, very striking. I, I didn't realize until rereading that just how early Julian was into the discussion of what now has become uh, to be called luck egalitarianism, that is the view uh, that you should protect people from the constraints on their choices, but that actually you shouldn't necessarily compensate them for faulty choices uh, that they make. Uh, to, be, to be sure, Julian derives actually rather strong collectivist conclusions from his individualistic uh, premises. Uh, but nonetheless, I think um, that thinking about the methods that he uses uh, and his approach is, is very important. I want to say something um, about the tradition of thinking in which I believe we should locate um, Julian's work. He is an economist, and he approaches questions of social policy from the lens of those trained in welfare uh, economics. Now, welfare economics is an inheritance from utilitarianism uh, of the 19th century, and the view in particular that it was the task of government to promote the general welfare. But it became clear in those discussions in the 19th century that there were at least two problems which, it was very, which made it very difficult to int introduce crucial moral insights into the utilitarian scheme. The first of those was the problem of justice, really picked up by, by John Stuart Mill in Chapter 5 of Utilitarianism, in which there was a recognition that promoting the general welfare could, on occasions, lead to circumstances in which individuals were denied their basic uh, entitlements, as we, would as we would now say. And secondly, there was the conception of persons as active choosers, as active makers of their own lives, which is also a legacy from, from John Stuart Mill uh, in On Liberty. Now, in practical terms, I think in the late 19th and early 20th century, these three themes of the general welfare, of, of justice to individuals, and of individuals as choosers, hung together quite well. Putting it very crudely, uh, that was the era of political enfranchisement, and with the vote followed social rights and the schemes of social insurance, which brought the magic of averages to the salvation of millions. But those problems about how these three ideas, the general welfare, justice, and choice, hung together were always there in the literature on welfare economics, and I believe it's those ideas that Julia picks up in Equity and Choice. Core principle in equity and choice is that welfare is to be maximized subject to the constraint that individuals face equal choice sets and with allowance made for the choice that individuals exercise within those choice sets. And I think many of the subsequent policy proposals with which Julian has been identified for reforming social policy, including such things as asset-based egalitarianism, can be seen as attempts to give expression to this account of justice. Now, I just want to highlight two problems in Julian's political philosophy, problems which might suggest that he, he didn't fully solve this, this latent problem of how to combine these three different ideas from the utilitarian tradition uh, into a coherent scheme. The first is his discussion in Equity and Choice of the so-called equity uh, efficiency trade-off about which he's very sceptical. I actually can remember um, discussing this with him in the very privileged circumstances of the European University Institute. We were sitting on the balcony of the Badia. Those of you who know it will know that you have very fine lunches there looking down across Florence. It's uh, not perhaps the most um, ideal place to be discussing equity from some points of view. But, 
it was, it was a very nice lunch, and it was a very, a very stimulating uh, conversation. And, and one of the themes that, that Julian pursues in his discussion of the so-called equity efficiency trade-off in that book is, I think, a very interesting insight that he had, which is that, that efficiency may actually be about not a goal in itself, but a way of saying to yourself that you've actually achieved a satisfactory combination of values that you're searching. For example, you may be interested in security, you may be interested in freedom, these can conflict at one stage. So efficiency is about have you got the best combination, the optimal combination of, of these two things. And I think that's a very important and a very interesting insight. But I still think that it leaves the question, and I remain unpersuaded here, that there isn't a, a continuing possible trade-off between enhancing general prosperity on the one hand and securing a more equal distribution of that prosperity on the other. Uh, or to take an example, <clears throat> I see Rudolf Klein's in the audience, take an example of Rudolf's um, in preventive health measures uh, about promoting general health through preventive health measures, but possibly at the cost of widening uh, inequalities in health status. It seems to me that that tension between raising the average level of prosperity or well-being on the one hand and doing justice to individuals on the other uh, still remains. And I, I, I'm afraid I remain unpersuaded by Julian's example that we can get around this example, uh, get around this problem by thinking about examples where a change in incentives for people to get them to work harder, which is the argument that he uses in that book, uh, actually leaves them, leaves them worse, worse off. But even if, even if Julian will, will, will grant me that, I think that there's also um, a more serious problem. And uh, that is a problem to do with how we're to treat unfortunate outcomes from choice within a scheme of social welfare. Now, Julian makes a very clever and very interesting move at, the, at this point in the book, and it, it runs as follows. So the general, the general argument runs like this, that, that you should really protect people from bad luck which is beyond their control, but you shouldn't really protect them from uh, the unfortunate consequences of choices that they have freely, freely chosen to make. And so he illustrates this. Uh, a, he illustrates this by imagining that there are two, there's an unemployment insurance scheme in which half the population decide to enter into the unemployment insurance scheme and half the population decide not to go into the scheme. And we can imagine a simplified example in which 5% five, 5 of each of these two groups ends up unemployed. Now, of course, the people in the insurance scheme will, will receive compensation during their period of unemployment. But the people outside of the unemployment insurance scheme will not receive that compensation because they've chosen not to insure themselves. Now, the tendency there is to say at that point, well, that was their free choice and they should live with the consequences. But Julian then has this very interesting move. And he says, no, wait a minute. Of, the, of all those that were uninsured, 100% of those who were uninsured, 95% of them had the good luck not to need the insurance. So there's a certain sort of bad luck beyond your control that's involved in being one of these 5% of people who, though uninsured, nonetheless ends up without the money. And therefore, it's much more difficult to, to conceptualize this idea that people should be given the full, uh, should, should bear the full consequences uh, of their personal choices. But I think that what that example actually does is not to to make the line between misfortune and choice a blurred line, 
I think it's much more to reveal the contradiction and unfairness that's involved in a system in which some people take the benefit of being uninsured, in other words, they're not paying the insurance premium, and yet have some claim on a resource which covers, which covers them because they are a victim of bad luck. In other words, I think if that example shows anything, I think that is the example for blanketing people in to the insurance scheme. It's not an example that shows that the, the line between choice and chance, good luck and personal responsibility is hard to draw. So what I think this example shows and highlights is that there's a genuine problem for anyone who's concerned simultaneously both to promote choice and also is concerned with the consequences of bad choices that people make. It's a, this is one of the reasons why I changed my mind because uh, he, here's a thought that I was having that may, maybe Julian is concerned about choice not so much because of the value of individuality in a John Stuart Mill way, but actually because he wants choosers to be an instrument of social policy in raising the general level of service provision. In other words, people who are choosing are somehow playing, playing a role. But let me just leave that aside. Let's, let's just confront the problem of those who freely choose, but choose unwisely. What are we to do about that in social policy terms if we don't buy the argument that actually even those who have chosen unwisely are in some sense uh, the victims of misfortune. Well, the first possibility, it seems to me, is just to be hard-hearted. I mean, we all know the story of the Scottish preacher in his sermon when he says that the sinners will be writhing in the fiery flames of hell and crying out to the Lord, oh Lord, we didn't again, and the good Lord and his infinite mercy will lean down and say, well, you ken the new. <laughs> Even theorists like Hayek have recognized the problem of being hard-hearted in the face of misfortune, not least because it causes a problem of moral exploitation. So I don't think that's a route that, that we can go down. Second route uh, is, is to be willing to draw a line between areas of policy where choice is effective and protection against the adverse effects of choice. And I think that the, the lesson of a market in health insurance is that there have to be constraints on the range of choices that are permitted, and this is partly related to questions of price competition. Now, the latent problem here, of course, is the problem of paternalism. And paternalism in social policy has become... Uh, uh, but to be a paternalist in social policy discussions is almost like admitting to a history of committing child abuse. But I'm sceptical that soft paternalism of the nudges sort will always work and will always avoid uh, some of these dilemmas about how to cope uh, with un uh, unfortunate choices. I've not left myself enough time to explain why it's social contracts for all and for everything, um, but just let me say um, that a social contract is a way of coming to a collective resolution of problems of policy, and of course, individual market choice can play an essential role in raising standards of, of social policy provision, but I believe there, have to, there has to be that collective choice moment 
as well. Thank you, Julian, for prompting these thoughts. Thank you. Over to you, Julian. Uh, well, as so often with Albert, um, uh, 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 I have to think about some of the points he raised and uh, not sure that I've got answers to them all um, at all. But uh, uh, Albert, you are right, I think. I, my belief in choice uh, as an instrument of social policy is uh, not so much because I think it has intrinsic value in and of itself, um, but more because it is an instrument. I think of it as an instrument for achieving other ends, for achieving levering up quality in healthcare education, for example. That, that's the real reason why I think I'm in favour of choice, not so much. Although, I mean, I do think it does have an intrinsic value, but that's not the, the major reason. Um, um, on the insurance point, I, I, that is right. I mean, it, it, where it took me was thinking about smoking and thinking about the fact that even if somebody does choose to smoke, uh, you could say, well, if, as you say, if you're taking the hard-hearted route, you could say, well, they have they made the choice and therefore um, they, they should bear the consequences. Their consequences are not being treated by doctors or by having to pay for their treatment or whatever. Well, that's their business. But... but then the point came up, well, actually, not all smokers contract illnesses. In fact, only about 50% uh, do. So 50% do not. Um, and so there is an element of bad luck there, which suggests that maybe um, all smokers ought to take the same degree of responsibility. And so what I suggest is that you actually load the cost of smoking onto the, the point at which you purchase the cigarettes. So everybody... Uh, pays a premium in some sense on purchasing the cigarettes and then the premium uh, is used to fund, fund the treatment and so on and that the responsibility is thus shared across all uh, the people who make the choice to smoke um, but, uh, but I agree I'm, I'm not sure it fully captures some of the problems you make and I do think I suppose at the end of the day um, that although I think that uh, the requirements of equity or justice and um, uh, Albert, Albert makes a little comment actually in the paper which he wrote which I've seen about the barbarism of using the word equity as synonymous with justice and I, I, we all, do, I mean economists do it I know you're quite right, we do do it um, but to have um, a just system um, where uh, you insist on people bearing the consequences of their choices. Um, simply, I think, to my mind, implies that justice is not the only value, and that compassion is another value. There, there is a, there's a, there's a well-known proverb, be just before you are generous. Uh, the argument being that, um, that uh, if you are generous to if you are uh, just to somebody, you are not being generous to them because you're giving them what they deserve. You're giving them their rights, what, the, what they order. Uh, it's when you actually give people more than they deserve um, that, that in some sense you are being generous and compassionate. And, and Now, whether that gets me out of the dilemmas you've raised, I'm not sure, but, uh, but um, it, it's an interesting set of problems. And I, I will be interested to see how the social contract your social contract, hints that you give towards the end, how that will um, uh, play out. Uh, we have time for a couple of questions or comments. Yes, lady in the front row, top. Thank you very much. My name is Nicoletta Catrini, and I'm coming from Swiss Graduate School of Public Administration in Switzerland. And I will tell you an anecdote, what I'm here tonight, 
It's because of the famous book of Professor Legrand, Motivation Agency and Public Policy. As I'm doing a PhD on public service motivation, I found one day this book at the library. I remember it was a Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock, and I started to read, and I continued to read 24 hours. <laughs> and in Wednesday sure morning... Sure, sent you to sleep for some of that time. <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> In one way, in, in Wednesday morning, actually, I felt um, a very pure intellectual joy. I was reading a lot of works on motivation incentives, but I was not seeing the roots of these articles and of these works. And I was used to read Theory of Moral Sentiments of Adam Smith or the Treatise of Human Understanding of John Locke. I was completely unsatisfied. And when I found the book of Professor Legrand, I said, thanks, God. I said, thanks, God. This kind of species of great scholars still exists. The species, it's not disappeared. I think your work allowed to economic thinking actually to get what we call emotional intelligence. And I really think economic thinking today needs this. It's a very caricatural way to, take, to say this, but it's what I want to say. And if I keep one lesson from your work, it's your erudition. I think it's what we need today as economists. And I think this erudition is the only foundation of any serious economic thinking. And I'm really grateful for you for this. I think all I can say to that is thank you very much. <laughs> I'm not sure who you're talking about. But, uh, <laughs> I think we all know who. But, uh, let's go to young lady there. Uh, actually, I just want to... Uh, my name is Doha Saleh. I came from Saudi Arabia just for this event. Uh, actually, Julian Legrand was my supervisor. Uh, I did research on equity and healthcare in Saudi Arabia. Well, I just wanted to comment that Julian Grant is a great inspiration. He's a great motivator, and he's really democratic in every way. He tries to uh, lead the students in the way of thinking. How do they establish themselves? How do they ha uh, view things? How do they think critically? And I really think he's uh, really uh, one of the most influential persons in my life. I just wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you I don't know whether my daughters would wholly agree I was most democratic, <laughs> but, uh, but <laughs> thank you. Very nice. Yes, and we'll take one last one at the back then. Uh, name's Tessa Crilly. I'm another former PhD student, this is, and this is not a conspiracy, but nevertheless, I would like to say thank you. A very good and uh, an important experience. But when um, I first came to, uh, the, to discuss the possibility of doing a PhD, walked down the Aldwych, and the billboard said that John Smith had died of the leader of the Labour Party. So, so we had a, a bit of a chat with Julian about you know, sort of, uh, possible successes to John Smith, and predicted quite correctly that uh, Tony Blair uh, would become the next... Uh, uh, leader. So my question really is, is a, one of curiosity and, and nosiness. There was discussion about uh, the experience of being in the corridors of power, but what was it like leaving those corridors and then coming back to academia 
And was it anything like our dog when she comes out of kennels and it's, whew, she's so pleased to be back? Or was it, <laughs> or was it something sort of a, a, bit more, um, a bit more subtle, should we say? <laughs> Well, uh, I think uh, it, was, it was a choice to come back. Um, uh, and uh, one that, uh, that I intrinsically felt was a, a good... Um, it's an experience, I must say, that um, I would not have missed for the world, the most extraordinary experience of my life, actually, working uh, in number 10, as, as one might expect. Um, but I'm so glad I'm not there now. <laughs> switching on, being able to switch on the Today programme and not, not clutch my brow and think, oh Christ, I'll have to do something about that. It, it, you have no idea what a treat that is. <laughs> um, and I have to say, and if I may sort of finish on this note, um, um, uh, that actually coming back from number 10, to, uh, particularly to the LSE, um, uh, I, uh, it is a a wonderful institution, the LSE, and it was a great um, solace and comfort to me uh, to, to come back here. Um, and uh, I think that um, the institutions will come and go. Number 10 Downing Street will come and go, but I think the London School of Economics uh, will continue uh, <laughs> at least fully uh, forever the foreseeable future, and I very much hope it does because it has been an immense privilege uh, and honour to be part of it. And I'm very grateful to the LSE for putting on this event. Uh, more generally, I shall take the opportunity to make some, make some further thanks later on. Um, but uh, uh, I'm very grateful to the LSE uh, for all it's done for me. Thank you. What a wonderful afternoon. Uh, I really feel the sort of the generosity of spirit coming up from the floor. I didn't really expect to see Julian likened to a dog returning from a kennel, but I understood <laughs> exactly how it was meant. And one can feel the affection from colleagues and, and from students and also the sustained intellectual engagement with his work. Uh, geographically, we seem to have been you know, exposed to all number of things, hospitals on the south coast, social theory emerging from Birmingham, God is a Glaswegian, all of these sorts of things have come through this afternoon. But I think what's come through most of all for me, and I'm sure for all of you that have stayed with us this afternoon, is this multifaceted contribution that Julian has made, uh, both to the life of the school, of course, which he rightly salutes, I think, um, but also to public life much more generously, uh, much more generally. Uh, and that is a very rare contribution for an individual to make. And I think it is very fitting that uh, Julian is, of course, here at the school and signals the fact that although we've been having some difficult times recently at the school, the school will go on to new strengths and it will be rooted in its strong traditions of trying to ask difficult questions and trying to connect good intellectual ideas to engaged public policy. And to me, Julian and many of his colleagues that have turned out today from social policy and LSE health and many other parts of the school and people that have joined us uh, from not just this country it turns out but from uh, very distant parts uh, share that appreciation Julian of your work and contribution. Um, I am now uh, asked to do four things which I do with great pleasure. Uh, the first is to say, and I know Julian will want a final word, the first is to say that um, we've kept a time and there will be a reception afterwards in the senior dining room on the fifth floor 
of this building, to which you are all uh, very welcome. Secondly, uh, there are some thanks that I would like to extend on behalf of the school. I'm sure Julian will want to do some of his own, uh, but particularly to the people that have helped to organise today's events. Uh, I thank particularly uh, Martin Knapp, over in the corner, who also managed to sort out some acoustical difficulties earlier on, Elias Mosiales, Ali Maguire, Angie Mater, uh, Esther Sidley, and also uh, Chamber Heidbrink, who helped me also prepare for this afternoon. Um, thirdly, Julian, <laughs> we have, and there are four uh -oh. points. Thirdly, Julian, uh, we, we have something from, I think, hopefully most people that are in the room this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so you may open do it. I dare? Yes, you do. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. Well, it's, um, <laughs> it's not a nude picture. <laughs> it's, um, it's a sign by vast numbers of people. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for those. Thank you, everybody. And lastly, I've been asked to say that not only is Julian perhaps the best-dressed man in social policy, <laughs> but he has another new achievement also recently. I think you've become uh, a grandfather. Um, so I've been asked to put this one up <laughs> behind you. But it, it wouldn't be fitting uh, for me to close things, Julian, if you would like to uh, make a closing, uh, offer well, a few yes. closing words. Um, could, I, could I just... Uh, 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 I found this event overwhelming. Um, and uh, I am deeply grateful to all the people who've been involved in it. Um, um, uh, I would like to, first of all, thank the, um, the people who've spoken, which um, seems to be well beyond the call of duty to, um, uh, to do what they've done. Um, they have um, uh, vastly uh, exaggerated um, uh, any uh, contribution or influence I have, but I am very grateful to them for that. Um, <laughs> some, somebody out there might believe it. Uh, um, and, um, uh, and I'm deeply appreciative of the time you've taken and the work you put in to do this, and thank you very much. Um, uh, I would like to thank Stuart, too, for chairing the session. Um, he stepped in from uh, for Howard Davis, who sadly, as for reasons everyone will know, uh, cannot be with us. I would just like to mention pay a little tribute to Howard Davis too although he can't be with us um, uh, uh, he was one of the drivers behind this event um, and, uh, and I must say uh, he was an excellent director we are very sad to have lost him um, but, uh, but uh, these things happen um, could I pay a particular thanks to uh, Martin Knapp um, and to Elias Marcialos um, who have uh, um, who have uh, in charge of uh, LSE Health and Social Care, um, which have sponsored this event and have done a great deal to, uh, to drive it, um, to make it success, to hold my hand when I was feeling particularly nervous um, uh, about it, um, uh, and uh, for their support um, and encouragement through the years has really been a major factor in um, the, uh, contrib any contributions I have been able to make. 
And um, finally, I would like to express particular thanks. They're not here, unfortunately. Um, but Angie Mehta um, and Champa Heidbrink, um, who did, um, uh, who've done 99% uh, of the work in organising this, uh, and again also did a great job in holding my hand when necessary. Um, uh, and uh, I really would very much like to express my appreciation to them uh, and to everybody I've mentioned uh, for that. Um, and finally, if I may say, um, just thank you all for coming uh, for this. Some of you have come a very long way, Doha indeed, from Saudi Arabia. Um, and uh, I am deeply appreciative that, that uh, people have done this. Um, and so I'm very grateful to you all. Thank you very much.